look with me, if you will, at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We'll be looking specifically at verses 1 and 2 this week. Um, and we left off uh, out of chapter 4, but for the last couple of chapters, Paul has been laying something out. He's been laying out that justification before God is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He's made clear that there is no law and no obedience to any law that can rescue us from the domain of darkness and deliver us into the glorious light of the Father. Nothing. No other means. Only faith in Jesus and His effective, sufficient, atoning work on the cross removes sin and imputes righteousness to those who trust Him and repent. Here in this chapter, Paul begins showing us the consequences or the results that flow out of being justified by God. He starts off, Therefore, having talked about justification, had made my argument final that justification by, uh, through faith in Jesus Christ is the only means to eternal life. Therefore, since that's the case, here is the resulting consequences that come from being justified. In him. Um, in chapter 5 here, he is laying out something that we are no longer under wrath as enemies of God, but instead we are at peace with God. Not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that he has done. We're at peace with God. You're going to see as we continue on in chapter 6, Justification is going to be seen as resulting in deliverance from the dominion of sin. In chapter 7, we're going to see and what's going to be revealed is that we are no longer under the condemnation or dominion of the law. In chapter 8, it tells us that we are free from the curse of death. So Paul begins laying out the consequences of the results of justification. Since we have been justified by faith. And the first thing that he says is, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to consider us having peace with God. And I want you to consider three things. First of all, that we have peace with God. Secondly, that we have communion with God. Thirdly, that we have a future hope of glory with God. We have a future hope of glory with God. Therefore, Paul writes... Since we have been justified by faith. He's summing up the argument that began in chapter 1 verse 18. Where he said that the righteousness of God had been revealed. And then he goes on to say, but men have, have suppressed the truth of God. 
and exchange the glory of God for something else, for unrighteousness, for a lie. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Many people are looking for peace. Aren't you? Don't you often look for peace? We look for it in tranquil places. We find a babbling brook to sit by and listen to it. See the sun and feel the breezes. Well, right now you feel the sun and no breezes. And you don't want to feel the sun for very long. You see, tranquility changes. Go spend some time alone. I mean, extended period of time. Some of you are going, that'd be great. Man, wouldn't you just like to disappear, you know, somewhere and just spend like a month by yourself? Most people are kind of like, you know, or some people are kind of like, that sounds like it would be fantastic. You won't last that long because you weren't meant to be alone. Neither was I. People look for peace in all kinds of ways. But Paul's not talking about tranquility. I just wanted to set that up. He's not talking about a peace that has no chaos. This is a different kind. That's not the kind of peace he's talking about. He's talking about a cessation of hostilities. That's the peace he's talking about. The hostility has ceased when you have been justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. The hostilities have ceased. Verse 10 in the same chapter kind of spells that out. For if while we were enemies, what do enemies do? They fight. They push against each other. They war against one another. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. We were enemies of God, and now we have peace with God. This isn't a subjective peace of how I feel peaceful. This is an objective peace. Paul is dealing with what God has done to bring hostilities to an end and establish peace. And what he's done is he's given his son. And by his stripes we are healed. By what God has done, we have been justified. There's an end to hostilities that is going on here. This is a change if you think about it, you've got an enemy, and then there's peace with that enemy. They're no longer enemies, but now the hostility is gone. What Paul is talking about is that there is a change in relationship as a result of justification. Not a change in how you feel. 
That's the difference between peace with God, the end of hostilities, and the peace of God. I feel the peace of God. And that's usually in the midst of chaos. When we can be at peace. Many have peace. We have peace with God as a result of what God has done in justifying us and declaring us righteous and forgiving us of our sin. We have peace with God. We were enemies. We, it's important to know that. So many people do not realize their condition. So many people do not understand how alienated we are from God. There's an alienation. There's a separation, if you will. It's important to understand our alienation from God in order to understand this peace that He has brought us. I think about it. If you don't know you're an enemy, peace will mean nothing to you. You don't even know there's a problem. You don't know there's a battle. You don't know there's a war. You don't know that you're pushing against someone. You don't know you're an enemy. You know how you find out an enemy? You hear the gospel. And it makes it known to you. You're an enemy. If we don't understand how alienated we are, this peace means nothing. If you don't understand that you're guilty and condemned because of sin, the peace of God will mean nothing to you. Imagine a broken relationship in your life. Bad one. And you're at fault. You're the one who broke it. You're the one who shattered it to pieces. And try as you may, you can't see a means, a way whatsoever of mending that relationship, of restoring that relationship. You, you're just, you, you're, you have no idea how to do it. There's not enough, I'm sorry, there's not enough anything. And then like that, the person who is offended comes and does everything that's necessary to mend that relationship. You were helpless. And God healed it. That's what's happened. We have peace with God. Someone we've considered an enemy. You are completely at fault and have offended the God of glory. Yet He, in His great mercy, removes the sin and guilt and condemnation and in doing so establishes a new relationship with Him. Brings you into relationship with Him. This is what 
God has done. This is not what you have done. This is what God has done. This is what God, God has done. Think about this. The God who created everything did something for you you did not deserve. He called you. He chose you. And he put before you the gospel. And he said, come. He said all that through Jesus Christ. And we come to Jesus Christ. And he brings us to the Father. He did that. God has done that. God didn't kill you. He didn't destroy you. He didn't let you breathe some air and then sin and then take you out. We talked about this weekend. He was patient with you. And he brought you to the cross. We have peace with God. We're not at odds with him. And he's not at odds with us. I like when we get to Romans chapter 8. We might camp there for a while. If God is for you, who can be against you? I think sometimes we forget that God is for us. And he is. He's for you. He loves you. Have peace with God. Undeserved peace with God. Secondly, I want us to see that he calls us and one of the results, consequence, if you will, of being justified through faith in Jesus Christ is we have communion with God. Look at verse 2. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have access. A word that helps us to understand this phrase better, I think, is introduction. Access sounds just like an open door, and it's kind of like, well, it's open, just go on through. No. The word is saying more than that. The word is speaking of an introduction to a king. Or someone in high office. John Adams was the first ambassador to Great Britain following the revolution. And one of his chief complaints was all the pomp that went into having to go into the presence of a king. And they had to dress a certain way, and they had to walk in. And when they walked into the door, they had to bow, you know. And then they had to go halfway in, and they had to bow again, and they had to bow. And they had to back out of the room, not turning their back against the king. But that's how you had to be introduced to the king of England.
We have access. And the introduction, look what it says. We have access, obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, in which we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And where does that peace come from? Through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who introduces us to the Father. One by one. Hey, Father, behold your child. This is your Father. It's an irrevocable introduction, by the way. We've obtained access. We have been personally introduced to the Father by the Son. And we didn't walk in like this. The Son introduced us by this means, the cross. He did all the work to put us in the presence of the Father. This is an introduction that's already been made if you are a Christian today. It's an introduction that's already happened. You've come to know the Father. Look what it says. Through Him, we have also obtained access. Notice the present tense there. The present tense is accompanying something called perfect tense. Speaking of something that has happened in the past that has continuing consequences or results. And that is our justification. And the continuing results are that we have obtained access by faith into disgrace. What grace? You know, that word kind of is a little funny there. What is it speaking of? We're not merely coming into something that God gives. We're coming into the presence of grace itself, God the Father. We've obtained access to the Father. We've been introduced for a reason, and that is so that we can commune with Him. From Genesis to Revelation, God is seen working to establish communion with his people. Isn't that how it started out? Adam and Eve in the garden. God was walking during the cool of the day in the garden. It's what he did. He communed with those who he had created. And then Adam sinned. And that communion ceased. And over in chapter 3, he gives the first signs of the gospel. That you'll bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. (laughs) God's already revealing this communion will not forever be broken. It will be made new. And it will be made new in my son. 
And so he wants to commune with his people. What happened when God brought the people out of Egypt? He gave them instructions for a tabernacle. And what was it that was going to happen there in the tabernacle, particularly the place of the Holy of Holies and the mercy seat? God would dwell there. And there was a tent of meeting that Moses would go out to. And he would go out there, and when he would go out there, he would meet with God. He would commune with him. And he would even have to veil his face coming out because he had been in the presence of the glory of God. And they couldn't even look on the radiance of Moses' face. He was dwelling with them. In John chapter 1, the scriptures tell us concerning Jesus, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Dwelling. You know what that Greek word is? Tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. God is constantly, from Genesis through Revelation, seeing working to establish communion with his people, to be with them, to commune with them, to fellowship with them. And what had separated them, sin, has now been broken and removed in those who believe in his Son and repent of their sin And now we have peace with God. In Exodus chapter 33, the people of Israel are at Sinai. God's people, they've come out of Egypt. They're at Sinai. Uh, they have uh, already, you know, gone wrong. Moses was gone too long, so they said, hey, what happens now? You know, we don't know where this guy is. Hey, Aaron, make us a, a you know, a, a God. And so he did. Moses came down and he shattered the, 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 the tablets that were given to him by God. And in chapter 33, God tells them, I want you to depart this place. He said, y'all going up to Canaan, but I'm not going with you. Well, that's a devastating thing. It was devastating more for Moses than it was for the people. The implications are that the people were kind of like, hey, uh, we have a motion to go ahead and go to Canaan without God. All in favor? But Moses goes to the tent of meeting. And he pleads with God. Man, there's no need in us going if you don't go. Why would we go if you're not going to be there? What chance do we have apart from you? And the Lord says, I'll do exactly as you've spoken. I'll go. In verse 18 of chapter 33 Moses says, please show me your glory. Do you know what Moses is saying? Lord, I don't have to have Canaan. 
but I do have to have you. I can live without Canaan. I can't live without you. God had been seeking communion. And do you know what justification does? It brings our hearts to a place that what we want is communion. We want to commune with God. We want to know Him. We want to see His glory. When's the last time you said, Lord, show me your glory? We have access. He's right there. Moses is saying, life is nothing without you, Lord. I don't want to go anywhere without you. All my stuff is nothing without you. All my possessions, nothing without you. All my relationships, nothing without you. Lord, show me your glory. God brings to us with justification a longing for Him. We imagine that we need all sorts of other things. Relationships. Possessions. Recognition. Fame. Importance. Moses says, all I need is you. That's what he puts in us with justification. He says there, verse 2, through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, into the presence of God in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That word is most often translated boast. We boast, we exult. In the hope of the glory of God. We see something going on in the future here. We have a future hope of glory with God. So something that comes along and is a consequence or a result of being justified by faith is this great hope. And it's not a hope that is optimism. It's a hope that is certain. It comes along with that irrevocable introduction to the Father. We have hope of glory with God. One day, God is going to unveil His glory to the world at the consummation. All right? I mean, when everything is said and done, one day the sky's going to break open. It's going to be fun. 
Uh, sky's going to break if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, it's not going to be a good time for you, okay? But for us as believers, for those of us who are in Christ, wonderful day, glorious day. The Son is going to come. He's going to take His own. And the Father is going to reveal, unveil His glory to all the world. And every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's going to happen. Y'all looking forward to that? That's a day that's coming. And as Christians, as those who have their hope in Christ and in Him alone, that's something we're looking forward to. That's something we have great anticipation for. He's going to unveil His glory, the hope of glory, it says. We boast in that. We rejoice in that. I says most people don't use the word boast very often. You ought to sometime this week, okay, just because I'm asking. And it got used today. To express, I'm defining it for you. To express an unusually high degree of confidence in someone or something being exceptionally noteworthy. I think that day's exceptionally noteworthy. What do you think? And I think I can have high confidence in what's coming. What do you think? And since that's true, since we have been justified by faith and have peace with God, that hope of glory calibrates everything in our heart, and in our soul, in our mind. It calibrates the struggle that we're facing right now. It calibrates the loneliness that we may feel. It calibrates all that stuff into making us see this is a reality in your life, but look at that one. Look at the one that's coming. Oh, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I, can't, I can look out there and see that. And that hope stimulates the hope I have right now. We have obtained access. We have His presence. Now. Not only then, but now also. That enables us to experience peace with God and the peace of God. Whatever I'm facing right now, it pales in the glory that will be revealed. It's Romans chapter 8. We'll look at that. That's going to be great. It pales in comparison. There's nothing worth comparison to the glory that God's going to reveal to us. Nothing. We have peace with God. That's not something that you should say, you know, I feel that. No. That's not the point. This is something you know. 
This is something you believe. This isn't goosebumps. This is fact. It's absolute for those who have their faith in Jesus Christ. We have communion with Him. We have peace with Him. We have a future hope that is absolute with Him. And all of our life is built on that hope. All of our life is built faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. It's a good text for us to consider the table that we have communion with God. For us to consider the body and the blood of Jesus Christ spilled for us. Because if he didn't die and rise, we have no hope. Only his sacrifice is sufficient. Only his life is holy. Only his life was without sin. And only he is the living God. And he laid his life down a ransom for you and me where his blood was spilled. His body broken, laid in a tomb. The Lord's Supper is a meal of significance in that we remember Christ's sacrifice. That the righteous died for the unrighteous. That Christ died for the ungodly we remember him giving it over his life to please the father and to redeem many who would call on his name so we remember the sacrifice of Christ of him paying the price we couldn't pay him paying the price that we wouldn't have paid. But of him paying the price for those who were enemies in order that he might make peace with them. The Lord's Supper is a meal of significance because there is a sense in which we are renewing our commitment through faith and repentance toward him. There is a sense of confession that goes along with this table of being with him, communing with him, having nothing separating us that we haven't confessed to him. We renew ourselves coming to him and saying, Lord, I thank you 
that your saving me is irrevocable. And I'm prone to wander, Lord. But Lord, here I am, renewing my heart, my mind towards you. And lastly, the Lord's Supper is a meal of significance because in it we realize our future hope. That we've been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's going to be a good day. To feast with the Lord in His glory. Realizing our future hope that we have with Him forever and ever and ever. And so this table is a way for us to remember these things and to know these things. In a moment, we're going to take a moment to Spend a moment in prayer, confessing, asking God to forgive, in preparation for the Lord's Supper. Who should take this? First of all, baptized believers. If there are children gathered today, who have not professed Jesus Christ as their Lord, have not been baptized, they should not participate in the Lord's Supper. Parents, it's an opportunity for you to share the gospel with your children. Opportunity for you to let them see the elements that symbolizes the body of Christ. This cup symbolizes the blood of Christ. His blood was, body was broken and his blood spilled for forgiveness. It's an opportunity for you to do that. If you're a guest with us today, you're welcome to participate. If you are a baptized believer and a member of an evangelical church that preaches the gospel, salvation that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you would be permitted to take this ordinance at your church, you can receive it with us. If you, in examining yourself, find that you have unforgiveness for another, or are boldly living in unrepentant sin, you should not participate. Just let the plate pass. Nobody's going to ask you a question. Just let it go. That would be in obedience to the Lord. Let's take a moment to pray.